Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. I'm delighted to finally be able to share with you a short series of discussions about digital health and healthcare in the Nordics. In the next few weeks, you will hear about Denmark, Norway, Finland and get a broader regional overview. Not all countries, but there already have been speakers on the show who talked about Sweden, so I will link those in the show notes as well. The first speaker you will hear from is Erik Yiling, the Executive Vice President of Danish Regions. In his professional career, Erik has been deeply involved in planning, organizing and leading the Danish healthcare system with the view from different professional perspectives and positions, practical and political. He is an MD with 25 years of practical experience in anesthesiology and intensive care medicine. He also worked as a consultant, head of the department and in superior leading positions on hospital and organization levels. So in this episode, you will hear him discuss the specifics of management in healthcare, how does one achieve organizational change in a hospital setting, but he also talked about healthcare in Denmark. How is the admirably elderly care system organized? How is it possible that patients have access to doctor's notes for 34 years since 1987 and more? Enjoy the discussion and do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Next week, we will continue with the Nordics. But first, to Eric. Eric. You have 25 years of practical experience in anesthesiologists. So just as a warm-up question, do you miss clinical practice? Yes, I do very much. I'm very glad to be a clinical doctor, but I've had this uh, uh, situation when uh, I tried to combine my interest for politics and for organization of healthcare with the uh, being a basic doctor to patients and I'm moving from one part to another and back again. And, but now I had to, I had to realize that the dealing with strategic and organizational matters take so much time. So I had to uh, realize that I cannot keep my skills as a doctor and therefore I've, I've moved from it now. How much does an anesthesiologist work with patients directly? It's from the general perspective, anesthesiologists are seen as somebody in the background that takes care of medications before surgery and situations like that. So with how many different specialists do you work as an anesthesiologist? My, uh, my subspeciality is intensive care. So I've not been uh, just putting people to sleep for several years, but working with intensive care, you are very close to patients and, and have a very close relationships to, uh, to the patients that you deal with and, and often uh, eight, 10 of them at, at the same time. That's the case. Eight to 10 patients? Yes. In the ICU? Oh, we had the, the last ICU I managed, uh, we had uh, almost 70 beds. And of course, we were a lot of, of physicians and consultants taking care of patients. So it's, it depends on, on the daily work, but you probably have the responsibility 
closely to one to three patients and, and then in the, the duty times where you should oversee the whole uh, department. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because, uh, because during surgery, you have to be there all the time, right? Oh, yes. When it's larger surgery, you, uh, you'll be on, on the spot with one-to-one uh, to the patient all the time. If it's a minor surgery, you often have a assistant nurse that is very constantly present with the patient, but you can oversee the whole uh, uh, surgical department or, or operational theater uh, and, and therefore move from one room to another room and just oversee the things is okay. Mm-hmm. As a supervisor. Just last question regarding anesthesiology, but one of the kind of scary things for patients is knowing that there is a potential that a patient is going to wake up during the surgery because the drugs are not strong enough. So how can that be prevented? Is there any way to monitor if the anesthetic thing isn't working anymore? Oh, yes, you have a lot of parameters that show that the, the depth of the uh, anesthesi- anesthesia is sufficient. Uh, it happens now and then the patients w- wake up, but they will, perhaps they will, they will move, but they will, afterwards they cannot remember it. it, it they, they don't experience, they don't have the consciousness about waking up. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's because that you, you, of course, the ideal anesthesia is that People jump up on the bed, you put them to sleep, and when the surgeon has put his last searcher, the patient wakes up and jumps to the floor again. So it's no problem to have a, a patient very deep anesthetized, but it's not very sufficient that the, that the patient sleep one hour after the surgeon has done his job. So therefore, you have to balance the anesthesia all the time. And therefore, it happens that they, they become a little too superficial in the, in, in the death of the anesthesia. And therefore, the patient could move, but they don't really mindful may wake up. In your career, you held several positions. You worked as a consultant, head of department, superior leading positions in the hospital and organizational level. I think this is an excellent basis for understanding how new healthcare policies should be structured and how change can be implemented. So can you talk a little bit about the changing roles in your career and the challenges that came with them? I will uh, glad to do that. From the beginning, I was very curious about studying medicine or going into a more political or policy directing way. I managed to combine those two interests very much. So it varied from the early start of my medical studies, I had as a hobby, so to speak, to, to look into the organization and the development of healthcare in Denmark. And therefore, I took opportunities whenever it was possible as a representative for my colleagues, a trust representative to, to move into um, areas where decisions were made. Therefore, I, I very early on had the interest and the talent, I think, for, for dealing with organizational and leading or managerial matters. So I tried over my career, career to, to combine those things. I tried to stick on to being a clinical doctor because it gave me a lot of honesty and a legacy about the organizational things because... I was still a clinical doctor with my coat on, and, and therefore my colleagues trusted what I said and did, 
and and that has something to do with the ownership to change and and it was uh, therefore uh, being still being a clinical active doctor was very important during times but as i said in the, in the beginning at at one point you you had to realize that you could not keep up your skills when you're not uh, dealing with the clinical stuff all the time or uh, many hours uh, a week and therefore i had to change track but i had proven my skills and I've proven that I know what it's all about. So people listen when I talk about organizational change within healthcare and hospitals and, and the the pre-hospital settings, et cetera, et cetera. It's sometimes very difficult to understand why things don't work or the staff can get very dissatisfied by the management. And once you become part of the management, that perspective might change because you get a completely different perspective about what it's like to manage people. So what did you learn about the organizational change and how to motivate people to adopt new policies and solutions? It's very much about communication. We all know Peter Drucker's uh, sentence about structure eats uh, strategy for breakfast and structure for lunch. Uh, or culture eats strategy and structure. And therefore, the mindset is very important here. And therefore, the, the ability to communicate the big changes into what is close to you and your colleagues and what will that change mean to us. It's a, a very important thing because you could uh, talk about the, the big things and the helicopter perspective and where healthcare is going to change over the next 10 or 20 years. But if it's not relevant to them, if if they do not experience the relevance for for what they are, it could be difficult to make the transformation. Therefore, you had to seek out which elements is important to the man on the floor, so to speak, and in which uh, ways could they gain for change and in which ways should they spend uh, in the changing. And of course, uh, taking the patient into hand is a very strong improver uh, and a, strong, uh, a very strong to convince the professionals, nurses, doctors, and others in the in the the need for change. For example, when patients ask the question, "Why is this cons- uh, this consultation that we have now? Why isn't that virtual? Because I could spare eight hours in a car. I could spare spending my whole uh, day off." as office and et cetera, et cetera. And then the doctor suddenly explained that the time for the patient is just as expensive and valued as my own time as a doctor. We are trained in a system where the doctor's time is the important, crucial issue, and therefore patients should wait on the doctor. Now that is changing. The mindset is changing. So it's quite uh, it, 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 it's almost, or it's at least uh, as important that the patient should not wait for the doctor, but the doctor should also wait for the patient, or they should not wait for each other because they could meet in a more simple way going virtual. Just to put an example of the way a change should be, that you, you should be able to see the perspective for yourself and your nearest and your patient. It's, uh, I always find it uh, increasingly interesting how the communication skills and uh, effective communication is increasingly emphasized for healthcare. For example, in the US, with open notes, it became very clear that the medical jargon is going to have to change 
for example, when a doctor writes that the patient denied something, it has it, it doesn't have a direct meaning. So, for example, uh, I, I don't know what what an example could be, but he denies that he smokes or something like that. And in the medical sense, that just means that the, the patient it doesn't smoke. But to the patient, it might sound as if the doctor doesn't trust the patient. Yeah, communication is huge. And also when you're implementing change, a leader needs to know how to be an effective communicator. Did you take any specific trainings or how did you um, get across the challenges with the communication skills, the leadership skills, and everything that they require. Oh, I've taken courses, of course, in 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 over the years, but also I had experience by training and and by uh, experience what it means, what it takes. I, the the first experience about this I had in 1987 as a young student in that department. At that time, the legislation in Denmark it turned that patient should have full access to the patient record and to what was written about it, about them. And uh, the Danish Medical Association and the doctors at that time, they were strongly against it. Because, like your example, what could you write about the patient that the patient shouldn't know about? But it was the start of a transition that everything should be transparable. If you suspect the patient to have a tumor in his lung, you should tell the patient, I suspect you have a tumor in your lung. You shouldn't take uh, tell the patient, I want to experience a little. I want to make some diagnostics because you have some evil flu. Uh, you have to be straight. You have to be honest. And you have to not to put any phrases in the, in, in the record. You have to write what you smell, hear, and uh, what, you, what, what your thesis is about that. Uh, hypothesis is about that. And today or just a few years later from 1887, no doctor could imagine a situation where they shouldn't be transparent and honest with the patient. So that's, that's just an example of cultural change where you have a lot of resistance in the beginning. But you, as a leader, as a manager, you have to keep a pressure. And you, at the same time, should um, acknowledge the resistance and communicate about the resistance and talk about it so you gradually make the change. You cannot do this with just with a stick. You have to use stick and carrot. It's, it tell them it, it's not going away, but let's deal with it in a way where you can also be here because you're also important. If I understand correctly, the patients in Denmark can see doctor's notes since 19. 87. Yes. Okay. That explains the forward thinkingness of Denmark. So let's dive in the, the healthcare system and uh, the digital hand landscape. Yeah. Denmark offers its residents universal health coverage. So everybody's eligible for healthcare, including registered immigrants for an asylum seekers. And the government sets the regulatory framework, but healthcare is executed and on a regional and municipal levels. So there's five regions and 98 municipalities. How do regions compare in terms of their ambition, progressiveness and access to healthcare? Regions has the responsibility for, for managing healthcare in the primary and secondary sector and, and medication. And they receive their budget by an annual negotiation as a couple with the government every year. And, and when that budget 
is negotiated. It, it is divided into the five regions and it's divided uh, by the socioeconomic uh, constitution that each region has. One region could have more elderly people, another region could have more social deprived population or other, other differences. But it's very accurate divided between the regions has to fulfill governmental goal concerning quality, concerning patient rights. You have a right, a legal right to have a diagnose within four, four weeks and you have a legal right to have a treatment four weeks after that. If a region could not fulfill that, they should offer the patient to be transmitted to a private hospital and the region has to pay for the patient. So that motivates of having an efficient system. The regions are joined together uh, in, in dealing with, with the government. They have an interest organization. I'm the executive vice president in that interest organization. So I make the deals on behalf of the regions with the government concerning quality research and other things. But the, the five regions are also competitors. They compete about having the best uh, patient satisfaction. They compete about having the best doctors. Uh, they compete about uh, giving the best development. Uh, they compete about having their results uh, visualized in, in, in papers uh, and being popular to their own population, so to speak. So it's a friendly competi competition between regions. Because when you compare the region's ability to manage healthcare, they will be measured as one. But still, they are also measured as one of five. Uh, so they are also measured as competitors. So it's a little on this side and other side. So there's not too many differences in terms of how good care you're going to receive depending on the region you're in. No, of course, we, we very strongly believe in what we call the learning organization and we very strongly believe in the principles of improvement. There, there will always be researchers, clinical frontrunners that improve the, the management manage of care or improve the results of certain diagnostics or treatments. And that will be visualized when we four times a year visualize the results uh, between regions. And then the other regions will, will catch up. So in principle, there are very small variations. I see. And one of the things that Denmark has organized well, very admirably is the care for senior citizens. They have the right to enjoy home care services for free, including practical help and personal care if they are unable to live independently. Can you describe a little bit the elderly care home market, given that we are in the age of great tsunami and many countries are uh, dealing with challenges because they don't have policies in place to take care of the aging population? Yes, prevention and rehabilitation and elderly care that is a responsibility for the 98 municipalities that we have in Denmark. And in these years, they also have a growing responsibility moving into the traditional healthcare services because often patients will be transmitted from hospital when the treatment is done, but the patient is not fully recovered to be in their own home, and then they will be trans transmitted 
to further treatment or rehab in the municipality. For many years, almost 30 years, I think, we have had the philosophy in Denmark that municipalities want to keep citizens in their own home as long as possible. And therefore, from the, the starting point where a citizen cannot manage themselves, it, they cannot clean up their house sufficient, then the, the municipality would subsidize them with cleaning help. If they could not uh, manage housekeeping, they would be subsidized in housekeeping to a certain amount. They will be subsidized in more healthy matters. If you have a wound on your leg or something like that, a nurse will come in your home and, and see if that's okay. Uh, if you cannot manage your medication yourself, a nurse will come into your home and help you medicate uh, uh, to 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 um, to have the medication day by day. And the, the philosophy is seeing from the municipality uh, point of view that it, it, it's uh, even if they have to step up in in subsidizing the citizen, it's it, it, it's cheaper than transmit the citizen into an elderly home and and have them there. This has uh, the consequence over the years that our elderly homes uh, are, are for very weak persons, you would say, and therefore, from the, the from the time you move into an elderly home and have your own home in the elderly home, your own department or your own room, your own privacy, um, the the rest the uh, the rest time you had to live is not very far and very much in Denmark, one year or something like that. And uh, and, and therefore, the, the nursing homes has the, the population that are very weak, they are very old, and we have discussions for now if we actually should change our nursery homes to be a part of the healthcare system because the citizens that move into an uh, elderly home or nursery, like we call them, uh, they often have multimorbidity, they have a lot of medication, and therefore it, they need more professional professionalization among staff than we saw before, uh, than we saw when it was a pure elderly home. And uh, we had recruitment problems into the nursery or elderly homes because it's not rated like the healthcare system. It's more prestigious to be in the healthcare system. And therefore, you have more staff that is not or, mo- or much less educated. And that's one of the considerations we have concerning taking them into the, the more officially into the, the healthcare system. It's simply to give more prestige to the employees that are working in the nursery or elderly homes. Mm-hmm. One of the ideals of HTEC, so solutions that are supporting the elderly population and the aging population, is to enable people to stay at home and take care of themselves as long as possible. Given that's one of the values of the Danish society, so to keep people at home where they feel comfortable for as long as possible, how does that impact the uptake of digital health solutions for the older population. We had a, a very digitalized population, even among elderly people. I think um, more than eighty percent over the age of eighty use an iPad, for example. They are very quite digitalized, but of course, we still have about twenty percent of the population 
that is not, we, we call them incompetent. Uh, sometimes it's young people, they are totally digitalized, but they don't understand our system or they don't care. Uh, and sometimes it's an elderly patient that doesn't do any web services, doesn't uh, have an iPad, doesn't look into my, uh, the digital mailbox or anything like that. Uh, you should know here that that all uh, mail uh, in Denmark from public uh, authorities is electronical. Every Dane has an electronic mailbox where they receive messages from the from the public. And uh, if you are an elderly or of other reasons, you could say, I don't want to have my mails as uh, electronic mails because I want to be out of that. And therefore, there are still some services where you have it as snail mail or in, in another way. But now we see that the, the originally uh, ordinary post services simply because they have too few letters to move around, it's moving down. So you'll not even receive your mail by the postman every day, but only twice a week now. And therefore, the motivation for moving into the digital way is increasing. At the same time, we look, because of demography and the grain of population, we see that within very few years, we will have a critical lack of staff in the primary sector, in the health and, and nursery sector concerning services at home. And therefore, we simply by need have to enforce implementing a welfare technology from toilets that do it themselves uh, to any other uh, digital or technolo technological equipment that could subsidize having that philosophy that people could manage in their own home and be so empowered as possible. Because we also had the situation in Denmark that you could not depend on your relatives. Why not? We, we don't have the tradition like you, for example, know in Italy where you really take care of your elderly relatives. We don't use that in Denmark. We have a very high degree of taxation we have this public uh, healthcare system and nursery system, and and we have a, a sort of inborn expectation that the the society takes care of citizens, and therefore I'm not the primary responsible for my old dad in the next two years living in his own home. I expect the municipality in his city that they should subsidize him with all they can. My task is to see that he gets the services that he deserves and he could expect from what he has paid in taxes years ago. I know it's, it's very hard to put things up like that because a lot of people, of course, take very much care of their relatives and take over from the municipality if they don't think that they, the service is good enough. But we have this inborn expectation that society, first of all, has a responsibility for taking care of their own citizens. And we also have the situation in Denmark yeah. that we are very urbanized. And therefore, it, it's, not the, it's not common or the rule that in three generations you live in the same city. Very rarely it moves to other parts of the country. And therefore, it's difficult to service their, their elderly relatives. And it's very seldom that several generations live under the same roof in the same house.
it's very seldom. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a few things that are being used to enable all this so kind of independence of people and the burden is not on the family to take care of the elderly. And also in the digital health strategy for 2018 to 2020, there's an increased focus on assisted living technology to help elderly people stay healthy on their own. Can you mention any additional examples from what you already talked about in terms of any good practices that you saw? Is the voice technology used, for example, is IoT something that is already embedded in people's homes? So just a little bit uh, more about that. Oh, yes. we. I think we are moving into all kind of technology uh, devices that could uh, subsidize the situation. We, we had this a, a, a great population, we know that we have to trans, transfer or transmit the healthcare system to be much more population-based, much more reaching out, much more concerned about uh, prevention than just treatment. And therefore, we are moving from a healthcare system to healthcare services, you would say. And as a matter of that strategy, the important thing is to empower patients as much as we can, or uh, not only patient, before they get, pay, uh, get into being a patient, the population, empower them as much as we can. And therefore, they are subsidized with a lot of services. Information, of course, we have uh, what we call uh, or Healthcare DK, which is a portal which has the, the purpose of, of uh, uh, information to, to persons and professionals with all kinds of information about illnesses, about uh, treatment, about rehab, about costs, agriculture, you name uh, anything that could could uh, be picked down by the citizen to educate them into to, to more healthcare. We have, of course, uh, electronic uh, surveying systems in, in people's home when they want it and if they need it, so a, a, a nurse, home nurse could directly get in contact with the citizen. For example, you have a device uh, on you and if you fall, for example, have a hip fracture or something like that, it could not move from the the floor, you would press a button and then you are directly in contact with with a nurse that asks you what is going on and could come and see you or send an ambulance or something like that. And then, of course, all kind of devices that, that people could, uh, could take down from the internet concerning information, concerning self-managerial programs and, and so on. We are trying to implement that. Yeah, and, and because the 98 municipalities and the five regions are in principle individual and individual responsible, they use that also as a, a, a stimulating of the, the, the improvement they do and in their internal competition about who can provide this service to citizens. We are better than you are. And, and you have to take into action here that the patient had a free choice. Even if you live in one region, you could make the choice that you would have the service in another region or in another municipality and, and your home region or municipality should pay for the service. So therefore there's also this, uh, the pressure, uh, into the competition that you also always keep up in speed and, and to compare you. I think, uh, that's the major things I would say about the development in, in, in this perspective. 
Can we perhaps add a little bit to the point about uh, patient empowerment and working on prevention? One of the things that I'm wondering is today there's a lot of information everywhere. There's a lot of apps everywhere for various uh, purposes, disease management, prevention. And it, it, it can quickly get very overwhelming for the patient to figure out which information to, to trust and which not. And at the same time, on the provider side, it's impossible for doctors to advise patients what's useful and what isn't. So how do you address that? Are, is everybody just referring to that one central piece of information that's providing preventative care on the national level? What would your advice be in terms of how can providers and, and patients get more, most from all the innovation that's available today? As a service in this uh, national portal called Sundhed.dk uh, and Healthcare DK, there is an um, uh, there is an a facility that is uh, what we call a patient book handbook, patient handbook, and doctor's handbook, and it's a very detailed description of for diseases and treatments of the diseases, what kind of antibiotics should you have, and and so on and so on. We know that the information overload on the internet is paramount. And uh, and therefore, we are very concerned that the information on this portal, Healthcare Decay, is validated. And people know that. So they, when they are seeking information, if my kids have a sneeze and uh, could I take them to the kindergarten or should they stay at home, they could go move into the, the portal and have advices for what to do at it's uh, this is not uh, serious. It's only some some uh, such and such. And fortunately, it is so that uh, most people uh, come into that portal via Google. But uh, when they they chat something into the Google bar, they'll automatically be devised into the healthcare decay and having that validated information. We are working also these years on uh, and what we call an app take. Apotech, where validated apps could be present and whether your general practitioners could say to you, now you've got a, a diabetes and we should empower you to manage your diabetes. And if you take this app down or an amount of apps, we know they are validated and it would be valuable for you concerning collecting, you could collect your own data and you can transmit it to me as a doctor and can follow you. Or you could uh, even put them, put them, uh, the data into some programs that you, you could empower you further on. So we are we are very now concerned about the outreach to to citizens and patients to make them managing, but in a, a validated and evidence based uh, way as far as we can get with that. Mm. So you can of course also have video consultations with your doctors and so on, and you yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually one um, important topic when you say video consultations. Everybody thinks about 2020 and COVID where telemedicine became a new normal everywhere um, across the world. But in terms of digitalization of Danish healthcare system, it's actually quite progressive. It has reached a level where all Danish citizens have access to their own electronic healthcare records. So do all the doctors. So let's dive into that a little bit because everyone can have a different understanding of what that means. 
when we talk about EHR and access of patients to those in Denmark, how much can patients restrict who sees what exactly is there? Is it just the PDFs of discharges? Just for us to imagine a little bit more about what this means. For the moment, there's a, there's a progression going on here. But for the moment, they have only a, a, a few informations about what is happening uh, at their general practitioner's electronic patient record. They will have diagnosis, visitations, uh, and, 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 and so on. They could uh, have a, a full overlook about the considerations. They have a full overlook about medication. You could see all kinds of medications that you had. You could see you have full overlook or, or all diagnostics, lab results, etc. But it's a free text from the, your personal doctor or general practitioners. You don't have that for the moment. We'll come to that, but not for the moment. When you move into the hospital, it's so that every, in, in healthcare, in the portal Healthcare DK, we have called the health, what, is, what should I transmit it to so this portal the the health care uh, journal of the health patient record i would say and it's so that even if we have uh, different vendors concerning epr in different regions they all once uh, uh, daily they transmit all data into that health patient record which is a national patient record and people have access uh, to the information in that, all information, all texts, all results, all reversals, everything. We have a logon to the people log on with a unified personal identification number and a, a lock uh, into that. They could uh, decide who could see my information and they can, there's a logging so they can also see who has been looking at my data. And we we have now and then cases where professionals has looked into a personal patient record, even if they are not uh, in the position of treating the patient. So it's just curiosity or whatever the purpose is, that's illegal. And if you do it in a hospital, you will get sacked immediately. Okay, so there are uh, very strong consequences regarding that. Yes. And when a patient is admitted to the hospital, do doctors have the full access to patients' medications and treatments and specialists that the patient has been seeing? Because that's one of the uh, huge challenges of hospital admission, how to do the medication reconciliation and how to get the full picture of somebody that you don't know and is a blank paper if you look at them. If a patient to move into a diagnostic or, or, or treatment, the doctor has full access to any information that is on that patient concerning that case. We have in Denmark a national medication register uh, where, all, where, where all doctors, uh, when they prescribe medication, they re register it in that medical journal. And that could be seen from other professionals who has a purpose, of course, from the uh, drugstore from the home services, if they need it, from the doctor, wherever they are in general practice or at the hospital. So we had one electronic medication record all over Denmark with, uh, with all patients present. Could a pa patient have medication that is not registered there? Yes, they could, because a doctor could still take his own notes and make a traditional prescription 
and the patient could have in the drugstore. And if a doctor has not put it into the electronic record, it would not be present there. But it's a minor, 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 minor part eventually. So how much paper is still used for medical charts, for prescriptions, anything related to the information about the patient's treatment? Because one of the challenges that we see in countries that are implementing um, national backbones and electronic healthcare records that patients can access online is that you cannot avoid healthcare institutions that will not somehow be connected to uh, that backbone, which leads to inaccurate patient records. It's all electronic and it, it's electronic by law. You cannot provide a service within the healthcare sector if you're not uh, connected. You had to be, and so all prescriptions, everything is by uh, when when you have to revise the patient from one part to another, it's electronic, and and you had to deal with that. Of course, the patient has a right to have their own patient record in a copy, in a hard copy. You should be able to do that, of course, and and also working together with the patient so they understand the terms and the languages and and so on. But all work within the sector is electronic-based. The way we described it, it almost sounds that there's no interoperability challenges in Denmark. <laughs> is that a wrong statement? <laughs> there will always be... When, when, I, I always say that, that the technology is a good servant but a strong master. <laughs> and and uh, wherever there are people present, there, there could potentially be problems. And of course, there could be problems here by at cer certain uh, levels using different systems that could not speak together yet. And uh, w when you are in a position where you have the, the national system or the national terms or the national standards, it's no problem. And it's the majority. But you still have isolated systems that n cannot cooperate with the other systems probably. So I would, we, we are not out of problems. And of course, we, we are very much discussing also the further automat automatization challenges and the standardization challenges. So if you, when you transmit, is it the, the same standard you are using or, or, or whatever? So that's, I think that's a constant work that you had to do with your electronic systems to make it more and more simple. Because when you're not standardizing from the start, you had to take old systems and beginning to standardize. It's it's uphill work, oh, I would say. Since we're talking about challenges, given that the infrastructure is old, it has a tradition, how is the country coping with the challenge of the infrastructure, legacy systems, uh, implementing new technologies and just all that aspect, the, the challenges that come when you've got legacy systems and that can inhibit change and progress? It's a very huge uh, problem we see now because we have legacy systems that are 20 or 30 years old and we have to renew them. And we have just, in uh, as a, a preparation to the annual agreement with the government that we made here one month, one month ago, as a preparation, we, we had a, a, an analysis of our legacy systems in the regions. And we experienced that at least, at least... Uh, within the uh, the diagnostic area 
we have a, a digital debt in a very large amount of money. I think uh, almost 1 billion euros. And and that's that's almost three times as much as the new money that we are putting into the deal from last year. So it's a big challenge. And it's a very big challenge because each, go- each region is governed by a, politic- a board of elected politicians. And we have an election coming up this autumn. And those politicians uh, agree on the annual budget within the the region concerning how much should we put into bricks and new hospital buildings or renew and refurbishing what we are doing and how much should we put into the machinery room, so to speak, the engine, uh, the, the renewal of our IT. And you should not be in politics for many days before you imagine and see that, of course, as a politician who is very, uh, aiming for re-election, it's much more spectacular to to make new buildings or new new monuments than spending the same money in renewal of the electricity systems. Sometimes you are in a situation where where a, a board of of directors or, or politicians in the, in a region should say actually we should close down the hospital and use the money to renew our digital setup, and that will not happen. And therefore, we have to build this into our national deals uh, with, with new money from government to renew the systems. And we are, for the moment, we, we could have pay, uh, money for cybersecurity. And it's prioritized to that. But we had to make a follow-up on the digital and the latency systems as well. So it will be our big challenge for the next five or 10 years, I think, to renew our systems. To which extent does that present a risk and vulnerability of the system when it comes to cybersecurity? Uh, we, I would say that we are quite safe. And, and the last uh, the last cyber crime attacks we have seen in Europe uh, in the last one or two years, the attack was tried on Danish systems as well, but they didn't get in. So it's still pretty safe, but it's not, it's not safe for the future, you would say. Yeah, but it's still reassuring for the patients to know that their information is safe. Eric, that's all the questions that I have for you today. So thank you for sharing the insight. I'm pretty sure that some people are going to consider moving to, to Denmark because it <laughs> does sound very yeah inviting in terms of healthcare. But before they consider that, they they should know that we have two winters in Denmark, a green and a a green and a white and a wet one. So uh, it's rained a lot in Denmark. So take that into consideration before we move. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Stay tuned and subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Next week, we'll continue with digital health and healthcare in Norway.